Do you have an active intellectual life? That is a question you may feel uncomfortable answering these days, given that the very phrase intellectual life can strike some people as pretentious or self-indulgent, even irresponsible in time of pandemic disease. But what better time could there be for examination of the subject of the inner life? And what is the intellectual, intellectual life anyway? In her 2020 book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, Zena Hitz explores the interior world and shows that intellectual endeavor is not simply a matter of reading by oneself, but can encompass everything from a lifelong fascination with falcons to strategies for attaining one's sanity and humanity in a gulag, or producing groundbreaking political and sociological writings in a prison cell in Mussolini's Italy. In the course of her book, Hitz deploys real-world examples from young Einstein in his job in the Swiss patent office to Malcolm X's encounter with the, fel- with the fellow prison inmate who first urged him to embark on a life-changing course of reading, to Dorothy Day's encounters with books throughout her life and their influence on her youthful secular radicalism, to her conversion to Catholicism and continued activism. We also encounter St. Augustine and take a deep, drive, deep dive into Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels and travel with a Preston Surgeon hero in a screwball comedy slash social commentary film. Hitz's reader-friendly examination of the intellectual life is ideal reading for the millions of us confined to our homes due to the coronavirus and who now have time to read and to think seriously about matters of mortality and the meaning of life, which are suddenly front and center in our daily lives. And at a time of pandemic-related economic peril for liberal arts colleges and programs, Hitz has taken what ailed them even before our current crisis and a prescription for a way forward for those that survive in the next several years are must-reading for not only academics, but all citizens who care about how civilization itself carries on. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Zena Hitz, author of the 2020 book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Thank you for joining us today, Zena. Let's get started with the title of your book, which is charming, by the way. Oh, thank you. you. <laughs> and, it's great. and I should also say thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So, Well, thank you. We're, we're, and this is your debut on the New Books Network, It's I my understand. debut. That's right. Oh, that's so, wonderful. You I'm are thrilled. the perfect, this, this is a very, we're a very intellectually oriented audience, so we're, you're, oh, you perfect. are the perfect guest. <laughs> so on the title of your book, as we know, which is, I'm going to read it again. So to, to um, uh, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Let's start with the title, which is, as we say, charming. What do you mean by the word hidden in it? And I'm going to be, the, this is a real long question. So do you mean that, me- <laughs> so here we go, here we go, audience. Thank you for your patience. Do you mean by hidden that many of us don't even realize that some of our activities are manifestations of an intellectual life and might be surprised that something we regard as a hobby or special interest of our own is actually a form of intellectual life? Alternatively, do you mean hidden and that some of us don't share with others intellectual or intellectual passions for fear of seeming eccentric or self-centered? Or do you mean hidden in that the world at large regards the intellectual life as involving book learning and belonging mostly to academia and think tanks and is therefore hidden from public view? You say in the book, the book this about learning. It begins in hiding. You use the word invisible towards the end of the book, writing, the invisible life has all the human splendor of the visible one and often more. Is there a difference in your mind between the hidden and the invisible? Over to you, Zena. Uh, well, thanks so much. That's a great question. Um, I don't think I did mean a difference between hidden and invisible. I think I meant them the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I want to say uh, it's a little closer to the third of your options. So it's certainly true that the kind of activity I'm interested in is something we can carry on without taking it fully seriously. 
so someone may read and think or study plants or animals as a kind of a hobby without thinking of themselves as being an intellectual. So that's true. Um, the main thing I wanted to capture by hidden or by invisible is the inwardness of intellectual life, that it is essentially something that begins in an inner life, uh, in inner dialogue, in inner reflection, in private. It begins there. Now, it doesn't have to end there, obviously. I also think intellectual friendship, intellectual community, that's all very important, too. Mm. But at the end, you need, uh, there has to be this confrontation of the individual heart and mind with whatever it is that they're thinking about or wondering about. Uh, that's fundamental. So hiddenness in that way, because it's inward and because it's part of our inner lives, it may or may not manifest outwardly. So our closest friends and relatives may not know what we're thinking about or pondering. Um, it may manifest itself in books or articles or uh, in an academic career, and it may not. Um, so it's part of it is the idea is that intellectual life in its original sense, in its primary sense, is something that really is whose value doesn't depend on the results. It's not something which necessarily has a product uh, that's visible to the outside world. And that, I think, is important for thinking about um, what it is and why it really matters to us. Hmm, that's very helpful. Now that we've discussed the word hidden, let's discuss what you mean by intellectual and the intellectual life. Is there a difference, and you mentioned this, is there a difference between that and the inner life? At what stage of life do most people commence having an intellectual life? I know I was fascinated that you said your brother taught you to read, for example, which is kind of unusual. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed it was. <laughs> how, old were, how old was he and how old were you? Um, I'm not quite sure how to separate the legend from the fact. Uh, so <laughs> I think the legend is that he was four and I was two. That sounds a little implausible to me. So I'm not really sure, uh, but it's true that I can't remember not knowing how to read. So it was sometime before the, the advent of my conscious memory. And um, your parents back you up on that, uh, that, that, that your brother taught you. Uh, that it comes from them, and oh, uh, and and the, the legend too about him, me being two and him being four also comes from them. So again, I don't know. Sometimes these stories turn out not to be true, um, but I don't. I think it is different for different people. So I try very much in my book to um, present a big, uh, big tent picture of the intellectual life. So I'm a. I was a. We were a very unusually nerdy family. Uh, we read a lot. We argued a lot. We talked about things. We liked facts and science and math and all kinds of things. And of course, uh, as is not unusual, I became a professional intellectual and academic. Um, so that's only a few people are ever going to be uh, interested to that degree or to that intensity or really find that they're going to spend a career doing it. But I think everyone... I'm very comfortable saying everyone to court has an inner life. They all have a space within them where they reflect or contemplate or savor or encounter certain things on their own in an unmediated way. Uh, and I think that what I, I, I've gone back and forth over the course of my thinking about this as to whether everyone, really everyone also has an intellectual life uh, <laughs> or whether... Mm. Um, whether I want to set aside, say, someone who, um, say, an ordinary churchgoer whose, uh, whose inner life consists of prayer, uh, 
Is that an intellectual life? Well, in some ways it might be. You're contemplating, you're, look, you're thinking about God, you're reading the scriptures. Um, but it's not, it may be less intellectual in some people than in others. So again, I can go either way on something like that. I, so I, I want to be confident that inwardness belongs to everybody. Intellectual life, I think, certainly belongs to most people. And if you understand inwardness in a certain way, to everyone also. Hmm. Uh, that's a little bit roundabout, but that's, I think, what I want to say about it right now. Well, that well, 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 I won't press you further. Then. <laughs> you, you could feel, feel free to press me further. That's part oh. of what this is about. Press me as press oh. me, put me against the wall. I that's it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, all right. This next question is is a little bit is is a little bit pressing you a bit. Oh, perfect. You, okay, you use the word pleasures in the title of your book, and yet in it you have a section of in the book called asceticism, and right there, intellectual life turns out to be a sort of asceticism. And as in ascetic, as in difficult, <laughs> and go yes. on to say, intellectual life is a discipline, the product of hard work and practice in a sort of self-denial. That doesn't sound very pleasurable to me. Could you explain to us the seeming contradiction? Uh, well, I'll have to tell you, maybe I shouldn't say this. Uh, the pleasures part of the title was actually something I tried to argue with the marketing people at the press about for just this reason. I thought it would be misleading given how much I talk about suffering and sacrifice <laughs> and asceticism in the book. However, here's why I think it is a good title in the end. Um, in the... I, I do think asceticism is important. And by that, I mean something like this. Um, it's fundamental to intellectual activity um, that something be sacrificed. So for instance, here's a common example. You really believe something's true. Uh, you really want to believe it's true. You undertake an investigation, say to prove it to someone else, and you look at the evidence and you think it over and you realize it's not true. Now, mm. that's a painful feeling, uh, but it is universal to any kind of intellectual endeavor, just as it is to, and I say this in the book, any kind of work. You know, you're a woodworker. There are certain kinds of wood that are just not going to do what you want them to do. Uh, there are certain kinds of um, ways of cutting it or ways of putting wood together that are not going to work. So intellectual activity is like that. It has an inbuilt sacrifice to it, an inbuilt suffering. What I also want to say and what maybe is more fundamental is that um, it involves, in order to get to what I'm calling the core of intellectual life or the roots of intellectual life, you have to get past um, the pursuit of uh, status, uh, of uh, power, of career advancement, of money. Um, and that is really a fundamental kind of asceticism. So I think that one of the things that happens when people encounter my work, um, and I have a lot of examples in the book of very noble, heroic figures who uh, read and think in the most adverse of circumstances. And a natural reaction is to say, well, um, you know, I've met some people who were intellectuals who were really not particularly noble or heroic or particularly kind or particularly plugged into their community. Uh, they were arrogant, selfish jerks. Now, what do you say about that? So I have to, part of, my, part of my thought about asceticism is that it's a way of understanding 
what can go wrong with the intellectual life. That is, if it's mixed with desires for status, desires for money, desires for social advancement, then I think you start to get something different. So, yeah. But now, see, you, you were worried you were going to talk too much, but now I feel like I am talking too much. The thing I wanted to say about the joys or the pleasures of the intellectual life is that despite that suffering uh, that's right there at the outset, at entry level, so to speak, you know, you have to give up looking good, you have to look, give up your pride, you have to give up, you have to appear ignorant, you have to face your own ignorance, all these things are painful. Um, at the end of that, there's a real desire to understand something and to savor it. And that desire is where the real pleasure comes from, where the real joys of the intellect are. So it's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering for the sake of something else. It's like the pleasures of intellectual life are like the pleasures of being an Olymp you know, being an athlete where you, you suffer a lot. You know, you, you diet, you train, you... Um, have to deal with coach, aggressive coaches, but then you have the pleasure of achievement, which is something that's only available when you sacrifice uh, other things. The sort of intellectual equivalent of no pain, no gain. Uh, something like that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Well, um, now that we've discussed uh, pleasures, a, a, related, a related concept to that is leisure. Mm -hmm. And could you please discuss what you mean by leisure and how would you characterize what is happening now to millions of people living under coronavirus-related coronavirus shutdowns? Is that a sort of, we're sort of in a state of involuntary enforced leisure, if you, if you say in terms of time? Yeah. And, our, and then you refer in the book to Lauren Smiley's 2015 essay, The Shut-In Economy. Mm -hmm. And aren't we lucky in a way, since we're at home, that we have access to the kind of web-based services that Smiley seems to disdain? I mean, she says, well, people are becoming sort of workaholic uh, or you know, slaves of the service economy because they, they're able to stay home. And, but, but those are kind of our salvation at this point because we can't go home. I mean, right. we, we can't go out. I'm sorry. We have to stay home. We can't go out. Yes. So I, I think that, yeah, I wonder, um, I haven't looked up what Lauren Smiley has been writing recently. I wonder if she's been writing about this. I think the point of the Smiley essay and a, a point that I also try to make in an essay and, and also in a, a blog post I wrote recently in response to how leisure fits with a coronavirus, um, it's actually not enough for for the leisure that I'm interested in to be simply confined to your house or even to be isolated because you can spend, as in the essay, uh, the Smiley essay, you can spend tons of time uh, on your work. You can actually work night and day. So one of the things that happens, I think, in quarantine is on the one hand, there's an enormous opportunity to restructure one's life you know, and we see this, some, you know, people get into gardening and they get into bread baking and all this kind of stuff, simplicity. And then we also have a tendency to just uh, live our entire lives online, mm -hmm. work, work for endless hours, and then, you know, switch over into screen distractions, uh, Netflix, uh, and so on. And I don't think that's leisurely in the sense I mean it. So let me say, you asked originally what leisure was, so let me say something about what I, what I think it is. Um, it has to be an activity, uh, a space that's away from what's useful to you, um, and a place where it feels like what you're doing in, in leisure is, is certain activities that are undertaken for their own sake. And that I want to 
put a little more weight on them. It's not just something you do for its own sake, like there are wonderful recreational activities, playing cards or um, you know, badminton in the yard or all kinds of things like that. It's not quite sufficient to say that uh, because you're not doing those things for the sake of something else, they count as leisure. I want to say that a leisured activity is one that could count as the culmination of a life. So it's a moment where you sit back and you say to yourself, you know, the time stops going by, you're lost in what you're doing, and you say, and reflecting later or in the moment, you can say, this is what, I need nothing more than this right now. So some examples are, um, for I think for many people, time spent with your family. You know, it's, you just, you're just being together. You're not, uh, you're not producing anything. You're spending, you know, you're, you're sitting by the fireside in the winter chatting, or you're goofing around in the yard in the summer, uh, or um, uh, thinking, reading, studying, reflecting. Those can be done really for their own sake, and you can get lost in them, uh, and they can feel like what your life uh, really culminates in. Creative activity, that's another example, music or art. Um, so I think these are, or uh, again, if you think about uh, ordinary churchgoers, their time in, in, in church, their time in prayer, maybe um, a time of leisure, a time of rest. Uh, so it's, it's that that I think needs to be safeguarded, uh, not just from uh, the demands of ordinary work in ordinary times when we leave the house and stay at the office too late, but actually in a way even more now because um, we're so subject to distractions because uh, so much of um, work is being done online. Uh, and it, it can be, a, um, I don't know quite how to, <laughs> it, can, it, can make your, uh, it can make you frantic and anxious uh, and uh, unable to really savor what's in your immediate surroundings. Yeah, it's interesting that some employers, it was a big controversy about maybe 10 years ago when the, the new, the, the incoming head of Yahoo said, no more working at home. Right. And now the, the opposite has happened that Twitter is saying, oh, you don't have to come back to workplace ever. It's just great. <laughs> and, and so it's, 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 it's as though the employers have said, gosh, you know, we can just uh, absolve ourselves of any interest in their lives at all, except the work product. And, <laughs> No, that's right. But I, I think that, uh, at least I hope, uh, that even those workplaces understand that um, there's some collaboration that really only works in person. Uh, and, you know, it's amazing how much we can do with technology at home. It's, it's incredible. Um, but uh, I do think, especially in my field, you know, in education, the in-person classroom, the in-person faculty meeting, it has benefits that really can't be totally replicated outside of it. So we have to do this for now, and, and I think we all recognize the necessity of that, but um, there's, there are costs that I hope that we'll remember uh, and come back to. Okay. Well, speaking of the workplace and economics and so forth, and as you, as you mentioned uh, that I could put you against the wall, <laughs> but you were, you were talking about, um, you're, you're about business. We we're talking about business and economics. And I, right. I get the impression from your work, from your book, that you feel that money itself are somewhat incompatible with the intellectual life. I mean, money's, but money in particular, money and business in particular. But I just wanted to point out that people in finance related fields, for example, and in investment banking, they're actively people, those people in that field are actively engaged in highly creative, intellectually rewarding endeavors. I mean, you're, they're interested in 
um, technology, geopolitics. Many of the people you knew in college went into such fields or left careers in academics in academia to go into them. They left academia. Did those people become less interesting and engaged in and intellectual <laughs> to you? And also, status seeking, while not necessarily admirable, requires a great deal of intellectual work. I mean, you have to just a scheming is a form of intellectual work. <laughs> I mean, being I'm totally to, devoting, you know, being a, a slimy, ambitious person, that they're also intelligent people. Um, did those who sought worldly success become to you dull conversationalists and not the sparkling intellects you recalled them as? Or at what point, I'd like to ask, when you meet someone, can you tell they're intellectually interesting or, or merely posers? Oh, that's a great question. So let, let me let me hang on to that last question and answer the first question first, which I think is really fundamental. Um, because I, I actually really do not want to say that somehow um, being a banker or a businessman or a politician is somehow incompatible with intellectual life. I don't think that at all. Mm. Um, and I don't think that for two reasons. Um, uh, now, one, it requires a little more nuance. So I talk early on in the book about um, instrumental uses of the mind. So you're using your mind, you're using it very intensely. Um, you're using it with a great deal sometimes of, with, you know, may require great virtues and great uh, habit building and great insight, but you're using it as a means to an end. So you're working on Wall Street, you're, tr- you're using every neuron you have to figure out, you know, what to buy, what to sell, et cetera. Um, if you're a engineer, um, it's very inter- intellectually interesting work, you know, to figure out how to organize a warehouse or how to build a bridge. Um, so I'm not denying that those are somehow works of the mind or denying that they're important. What I do want to try to rescue <laughs> uh, in our culture is um, that the mind is more than that. So there's a use of the mind, so to speak, <laughs> an activity of the mind that's not a means to an end but that's worth pursuing for its own sake. So that's why, you know, that's, that's the intellectual life of bookworms, of um, housewives in their corners sneaking time to think about something. That's the intellectual life of, of the prisoners I talk about in the book who, who undertake these intellectual endeavors. They're doing something for its own sake, uh, not because there's a product, uh, not because uh, it's going to advance them necessarily in the world or make them money, but just because it makes them a different kind of person. So in a way, part of what the distinction here is, which I haven't put in the writing before, but I've been thinking about it a bit, is part of it is a difference between thinking about yourself as a person who does something, who has a particular type of work, and as a person who is a certain kind of a person, uh, who has something with them inbuilt into their characters, inbuilt into their minds, which uh, makes them, makes you who you are and which you carry with you no matter what happens to you, even in really adverse circumstances. So that's, the, that's I think, the first thing I want to say, that I'm, I'm definitely not, I'm not denying the intellectual sophistication of many, many, many instrumental activities. The other thing I'm not denying is that in intellectual life, in my sense, intellectual life for its own sake, it's certainly available to people who work in any profession. They can work on Wall Street, they can be engineers, they can be taxi drivers, they can be politicians. One, um, one anecdote I, I, I like to talk about <laughs> is uh, I have this memory from it's St. John's, we have this, where I teach, we have this tradition of Friday night lectures, which are open to the public. 
Uh, and this, some years ago, uh, there was a Friday night lecture by one of my colleagues, who was also one of my classmates. Uh, and it was on Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher's theory of music. So what did Kant think about music? Now, not a lot of topics that would be less relevant, cutting edge, interesting. (laughs) Really, if you're only interested in this because you like to think about stuff and you like to think about what music is. So two of his classmates, who I also knew, came in from DC. Now, one of them at that time was a very, very high ranking staffer on Capitol Hill. The other one was a, a lobbyist total opposite ends of the political spectrum. So one of them could not have been more right-wing. The other one could not have been more left-wing. They came, they drove in together from D.C. They were classmates, and they loved sitting in this lecture, listening to Kant on music. And to me, that was so touching. That's a sign of the kind of thing that I'm, I'm thinking about for intellectual life, that it's this core that's inward and that's removed in some way from your work in the world, um, but where you, you, um, it, there's a piece of your humanity in that, that, that is not necessarily captured in, in whatever you're doing, uh, when you're, um, you know, fight, fighting for causes, uh, in Washington. Uh, so th- that's, that's, I think, I think, I think that should help. I don't know if that helps with the, the first part of your question. Um, and then well, we- I'd like to ask about the, the did it help? That it was a, a a joint enjoyment that he was, that the Kant was talking about that it was about Kant's views of music and not Kant's view of morality or anything else. The music uh, is sort of a yeah. Well, even I do think honestly, this is one of the things I secretly think. Actually, it's not so secret. I put it in writing. Um, <laughs> I do think that one of the things that can help. Uh, I mean, you were talking last week with uh, Yuval Levin about polarization, political polarization. And, you know, it's widely thought that this is a problem in contemporary society, and I agree with that. I think a lot of it is actually just what people talk about. (laughs) So, you know, if you talk about things which uh, are bigger, deeper, richer, more profound, more fundamental, you, you tend to get past the partisan differences pretty fast. And I think that even happens with Kant's moral theory, uh, it's not obviously, you know, a pawn in any of our contemporary fights. Um, it, now, if you, the more you study it, the more you think about it, you can see how it has a certain connection with Enlightenment liberalism and so on. So there's a lot to be said about it. But it doesn't, if you're thinking hard about something that's really fundamental, you're, it's really just a different kind of activity than um, that kind of uh, squabbling, bickering, back and forth. I think this, no, you think this. Uh, so that, that that's, I think, part of what I'm trying to recover. Now, I can, I can also answer the poser question when you like. I just I wanted to give you a chance to come back to what I just was talking about. Well, I think I think that, that it's, it, it, it is, it's difficult because I, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about the big questions. Well, I think, well, abortion, you couldn't get much bigger than that because it's a fundamental what is life or when, when does life begin? And that, so it, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's it, it's difficult to say when what you can talk about what you avoid. You don't want to trivialize yeah. life entirely, but you also, I mean, hmm, you got me thinking about that. <laughs> well, I see what you're saying, and that that's actually a great example. So I, because uh, in a way, I think you must be right. Abortion and euthanasia, these they certainly touch on questions about what human life is for and what a human being is. Um. Although I honestly think that um, 
most people's positions on those issues are, you know, they're, that'll settle further back on some kind of way of thinking about what matters in a human life. If you are willing to, in a particular conversation, now, you know, sometimes you have to argue about abortion. So, you, you know, you, you've got a Supreme Court case, you're a lawyer, you know, you've got to do it. You're a politician, you've got to do it. Um, but as to whether recreationally such a production conversation is worthwhile or educationally, mm-hmm. I think you have to wonder whether it might be more worthwhile to get behind that question to something more fundamental and where there might be a real common core of exchange uh, where people's anxieties go down, their emotions go down, and they can really think through, um, you know, what do they think a human life is for? You know, is it something that could, that's really rooted in your body? Um, and what would it really mean if it weren't? Um, do we, you know, what are what are the ways in which we identify ourselves with our, our consciousness, our our memory of our biography, and what are the senses in which we don't? And I, in my experience teaching at St. John's, which has a very diverse student body, politically and religiously diverse, I don't find that we, we, we have little struggles here and there, usually outside the classroom on political disagreements. Um, but for the most part, because we're focused on these bigger questions and the deeper questions and the difficulties of working through a very complex work or a very complex thinker, we tend to leave those things at the door and, and go somewhere else. And I, I think that's an underrated uh, approach to these kinds of questions, to just to talk about something else that's more fundamental and where there can be dialogue. Uh, that's my way of thinking about these things. Well, one of, one of the issues that came up as I read your book was the distinction between contemplation and learning. And it sounds like, like you want your students to contemplate uh, is there a distinction? Could you could you flesh that oh, out? Actually, that's, that, that I, too, that's too abstruse. No, no, that's actually a great question because I think I'm I'm pretty confident that I um, play fast and loose with both those words in the in my book. So I and they are worthy of um, untangling. I mean, learning is progress, right? It's uh, moving from one place to another. That's learning and contemplation is the culminating point. You know, you, you contemplate uh, the theorem you've just proved, or you, you contemplate the splendor of the character of this book, you just novel you just read. Uh, so that's, I think, the simple difference between them. Um. Well, what, at what point when you're, when you're dealing with, with students or colleagues, or when you were a student, did you, getting back to the question of someone's actually interesting or intellectual, intellectually some substantive to say, and when when are they just blowhards? <laughs> you know, see, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I definitely don't want to say, uh, and it connects, and it was certainly back to the question about hiddenness and why I want to call the intellectual life hidden. Um, you know, it, every year, uh, I admit this, I, maybe I shouldn't admit it in public, but I will. Every year, I, I, I meet my students at the beginning of the year, and I just naturally, automatically, without thinking about it, I stereotype them. This is a blowhard. You know, this is a phone. <laughs> oh, this is a good student, quote unquote, good student. And I have to say, um, those views tend to be completely obliterated within a matter of time. Hmm. And it's often true um, that students who, even who I've known for quite a long time, will suddenly surprise me with uh, um, some depth 
that um, they'd chosen not to display before. So it's, um, it's, it's, there's not a, in other words, um, it's not so much about dividing people into types. You know, this person's a phony, this person's a blowhard, this person's the real deal, this person's a real intellectual. I found that, uh, you know, in, as I reach middle age, less and less useful. I find that people are always surprising me. On the other hand, there are signs of when a particular student speaking is speaking authentically or is speaking to impress. And I think, the, honestly, the most, what, and that can be hard to, what are the signs? You know, is there, is there a way of detecting or, or explaining why it is that you think that someone is, is faking it or is doing the real thing? One sign, of course, is um, uh, smoothness, polish, um, long words, terminology, referring to um, knowledge that are, isn't shared with a room. The word, this is a bit of a joke, but there's something in it. Uh, the word actually. <laughs> so, oh, so it says, well, actually, you know, the Greeks didn't have a concept of, you know, that, that's to me, instantly I've turned off. I assume this person is just uh, talking stuff. So, um, so humility is really uh, a key to an authentic intellectual life. You have to be willing to acknowledge to yourself and often to others, what you don't understand and be willing to change in the face of uh, evidence. That's difficult for us. It's difficult for students, especially contemporary young people. They have a lot more trouble being wrong uh, than even I did when I was young. Um, but that, I think, is kind of the mark of authenticity. Can someone uh, accept uh that they don't know something, can they accept the limitations of what they're saying? Are they willing to progress or to move forward or to move backward? That to me are the signs that someone's uh, doing the real thing. Yeah. Well, that's very helpful because I know that you were a, a fellow at the James Madison program at Princeton, the James Madison program in American Ideal, Ideals and Institutions. And Robert George is very, uh, a large part of his, he's a director and founder, as you know, and what, a large part of what he does with Cornell West when he, when they both travel the country is they say, they, Robert George particularly emphasizes intellectual humility. And also you, you have a very moving passage and I'll look for it as you're speaking about the, what happened, the, what you said, there's a passage in the book about the disorientation of realizing that you might be wrong. And that's that's a big part of what he does, and I, I was really struck by that in your in your book about the fact that that it's 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 not a pleasant experience. And I guess that gets back to what you were just saying about it's important to be not to 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 be open to that. Um, no, I think that's right, and I I think that um, it's fundamental to uh, not just to liberal arts education, but to education in general. I mean, we uh, you know I'm from the humanities, and I tend to talk with a humanities focus. A lot of things we're talking about are also true for for scientists and mathematicians. They, you know, they have to be able to go back and test their hypothesis and see whether it works, really works or not. They have to be open to data that don't fit the model. Um, it's it's just crucial, and I think it's it's one of the things that can distinguish. It's one of the tensions between practical thinking. Um, 
where you're you're doing some thinking in order to ch- achieve a certain object, whether that's a, a product or a political object or what have you, and thinking for its own sake. Because if you're thinking as a means to an end, that end um, might obscure to you <laughs> uh, whether you're making all the right steps. Uh, you know, so if you if you and that's now that's more true in thinking than it is in real life. You know, in real life, you meet some materials, manual work. I mean, not really real life. Uh, manual work, you you know, you just you just can't bake bread without yeast. Okay, it's just not going to work. Um, but you can fabricate a theory out of words uh, that sounds good, that gets lots of attention, that makes you money, that makes you famous, and in the bottom of it, there's nothing. Uh, and you have to be aware of that possibility and you have to guard against it um, at all times because our capacity to be deceived or an, uh, is, is extremely uh, high. Uh, and that's part of why intellectual life is, is so crucial for our happiness and well-being. Well, I found the I found the quotes from the book that you talk about about the, the the intellectual humility that you're discussing, and you write this is from your book. It says, "Consider the self awareness induced by a powerful argument, a subject one cares deeply about, the sometimes sudden disorientation that results when one realizes that one might be wrong." And you also write, "When we think and reflect, we struggle to allow our desire for truth to prevail over the desires that conflict with truth." And that's, yeah, I think that, that, what do you mean that's not true? That's what I've lived with all my life. And that's what my parents taught me. And how can that not be true? <laughs> uh, you know, that's exactly right. Um, and I, I think for me, as um, someone who my intellectual origins in a certain way were um, thinking about, uh, because I'm a, a convert, right, uh, to the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. So I, I had to go undergo as an adult, you know, it, it wasn't actually even the first major change of mind. I'm, I'm the, I, when I was younger, I changed my mind a lot about very fundamental things. And it was, um, it was just this kind of concern that somehow I might be living my life by something which was really not uh, true. And how was I going to know? And it's hard work, harder work than, than we might think. Well, well, Skipping skipping to that topic, I'd like to discuss your 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 religious writing. I mean, your religious you write about religion, not not as a religious book. It's not a religious book. It's it's a book for everyone. But you write on the topic of religion. You write this: the charge that religion is anti-intellectual is widespread and ancient. And you write that you converted Catholicism very much on your own, given that hardly anyone in your family had any sort of religious feeling or any institutional relationship to a church and how much a part of your conversion was due to the rich intellectual heritage of the Catholic church or how much was it more deep or spiritual yearning? I would think the latter because that's what you discuss more in the book than the fact that there are these, this great, although you do discuss Augustine and, and I believe Aquinas as well, but, but um, like before you could, be, I'll just blather on. <laughs> no, 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 you're not blathering at all. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just wondering, were any of your professors Catholics who modeled for you what a Catholic intellectual could be? And if so, what values did they embody that you wanted to emulate? And do you think you've succeeded in emulating them? Is there anything special that Catholic intellectuals have to offer not only Catholics, but everyone else, especially during the pandemic? Or was, or was your Catholicism very much as it was a bifurcation. This is this is my intellectual life. This is my religious life. They didn't spill over. For example, when you were you went to a religious re, uh, religious retreat, I noticed that there you were deeply involved in your faith and your conversion process and the Catholicism, but you were not reading a lot. In fact, you were your your reading was copies of the New Yorker and some articles that your colleagues would send you, but you were 
sort of hungry for for some substantial reading, right? Or are we trying to to just swear off it for a time in the in the retreat? Or the community, really just community? I could say it wasn't a retreat. It was three years. It wasn't just a few, three month. <laughs> no. It's true. well, in a certain way, it was. I suppose like a like a retreat in the in the way that it finally worked out. Uh, you know, spent some time in the desert uh, fighting with demons, and then came back out again. Um, I think so. Uh, initially, let me start with the biographical question. Initially, I have to say um, it was not, as you're quite right, it was not an intellectual conversion. Um, uh, I think it would have been hard for that to work for me at that time because I had just been through philosophy grad school um, and had met all kinds of extremely intelligent people who argued for all kinds of crazy views. I mean, views that they knew were crazy. I mean, there were people that didn't believe in parts, and there were people that believed that... Um, didn't didn't believe you, in what? In I'm parts. Sorry. They didn't believe in the part-whole relation. Uh, so everything was corpuscles. There were people who didn't, who thought that... Um, anyway, crazy metaphysical views about the way the mm. world works. Uh, very, very intelligent people, much, much smarter than I was in, in an obvious way. And so... Uh, that made it hard for me to see um, reasoning as a way into the truth. That is, I didn't see how uh, an argument could convince you that something was really true because these people had generated arguments for things that to me were obviously not true. So so part of what, uh, so I, I think my interest in the church really was a different, what you're calling a spiritual yearning. I think that's right. I wanted to be a member of a community. I wanted to have a religion. I was curious in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, I had this affinity with religious people. I had friendships with religious people, um, and I felt like I was like them in some way, but I didn't know how to articulate it. So it felt very natural for me um, hmm. coming into the Catholic Church for the most part. It was, it was very uh, very easy transition. It was hard once I was in because um, as time went on, I realized how radical the faith really is and how counter to world, you know, the world and worldly values it is. And that crisis, of course, led to my um, going to the religious community for a time. Uh, but I guess I do think that, um, how do I want to put, so uh, I do think that Catholic intellectuals are extremely important right now um, or in a certain way, I want to be a little more ecumenical. I think religious intellectuals are very important right now. Um, and I, I think that that's true because... Um, when, you, when you say right now, and in, in what, in what, what is the time, what right now meaning the COVID, the COVID crisis or just uh, the 20th century? Or? Uh, yeah, maybe I'm not really saying much. Maybe what I really mean is you always need the... <laughs> I don't know if I have any particular... It's always important. Uh, well, I, here's what I think. Right now, given that uh, so much of our intellectual culture is very, very secular and very disconnected to, from, uh, so not just secular, but disconnected from questions about ordinary life. Or even actively anti-religious. Uh, actively anti-religious. But but really, I think... Aggressively. Aggressively yeah, anti-religious. Yeah. <laughs> aggressively anti-religious. That, that, I think, can't be, you know, it, um, that creates... My impression at this point, having been, uh, you know, um, a, a Catholic intellectual now for 14 years, whatever it is, 
Um, I actually don't think the number of people that are aggressively anti-religion is that high, but they have an outsized impact because they create a climate of fear. So one mm. of the things that's happened to me as I've, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's important that there be such people. I think this has happened to me since I've become openly an openly Catholic uh, intellectual is that people will come up to me who are not openly religious and they'll talk to me about what they care about as far as religion. It's not always something that anyone else, know I mean, anyone in their professional world knows. So the, the aggressive atheism has created a kind of climate of fear where people are unwilling to speak openly about things that they care about. Um, and these are things which are fundamental, right or wrong, true or false, they're fundamental to how we live our lives. I mean, these are questions that have to be grappled with. Um, they are, in a certain way, the original fundamental questions. You know, mm -hmm. is, is the world created? Does my life have a purpose? Is death the end? I mean, you know, what's, um, is a human being fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? These are just basic, basic questions on which uh, religion is an extremely valuable resource, even for people who, who might um, find it hard to actually get on board. Um, so I, I just, I think it's crucial as a, um, as a way for people to, to help people get in touch with those fundamental questions. Um, I think it's, it's, it's crucial for um, a, a kind of a leverage against, I think the way a lot of us religious people function is our religion is a kind of a, um, a lever against whatever the conventional opinion is. So it's hard to disagree with what everyone else is saying, the conventional wisdom. Um, and having a religion gives you just a, it gives you some leverage, it gives you some help, it gives you some strength. It gives you a community where you can go to and say, am I crazy? Or <laughs> does it seem like this thing that everyone says is okay is wrong? Or this thing that so everyone says is wrong is really good. Moral balanced. Uh, so I, I, anyway, I do think it's very important, and I, um, and I do think in the end that the intellect and faith can have a very rich interactive relationship. Um, even though for me it didn't go intellect first, um, I've definitely um, grown a lot intellectually since I became religious. Uh, even though that wasn't uh, the cause of my becoming religious. Hmm. Well, one more question on on, on religious and, and and faith and what people. Um, what gives them comfort? What you just in your, one of the one of the sections in your book that I found really interesting was about the Virgin Mary, and many many of those like me who were not raised in Christian households have often viewed the mother of Jesus as a sweet natured but vapid young girl, and later as a grieving mother, but nothing much beyond that. But in your book, uh, Mary is portrayed. You you are you you show that in the Bible she's portrayed as a surprisingly learned young person who knows her Old Testament, and century later. I heard a lecture that you also gave online, which I recommend that people Google about the, the Mary, I guess the, the, the Virgin Mary as an intellectual force. Yeah, the intellectual That's, life of the mother of God. Yeah, is what yeah, it's called, I, right? I, I really urge people to, to Google that and listen to it because it was really fascinating. And, but you said that in, in that, in that you, you made the point that in centuries later, after many years into Christ, uh, civilization, you know, time she's she's shown, especially in the medieval period, I believe she's she's depicted as holding a book. And I wonder, could you talk about the role that learning plays in the Virgin Mary's life, as not only as a young person, which she actually corrects Joseph or upbraids him for questioning <laughs> her, her her knowledge of the scriptures, but but later on, you say that 
when she's grieving and Jesus is dead, that learning or, or her her or her uh, her her welcoming of knowledge enables her to to face this this horrific experience. I um, believe I'm not I'm not getting that quite right, but I wonder you could you you, yeah. you could discuss that. So I I think first of all even a so it's um the question about Mary being an intellectual or being learned or being a bookworm um it's it's not actually biblical it, it comes out oh. of later later traditions oh it's um, not so she's not so she, but she says something like she I, says she, how, I think if I will ponder these and I will think uh, oh, about she, she ponders things in her heart so she's definitely reflective she ponders things in her heart that's in the scriptures she asks questions you know how can this be uh so she's a, a serious reflective person in the scriptures um, but there's no mention of her reading or thinking or studying. That What that appears in is a later tradition, uh, not much later, truthfully. Origen, who's one of the earliest uh, church fathers, um, describes her as being learned. And then that gets picked up and passed on into the, into the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. Um, I think that's what's more fundamental than that, though, connects to something else that you said, which is that, you know, we think of her as being this nice, nice lady, <laughs> you know, who, who had a baby and aren't we all glad and isn't it cute? Um, and I, I think the, I think what is true, even in the Bible and behind the Bible, before you get to the question about her being intellectual, she's an extremely strong person. So if you think to the circumstances uh, that she must have actually been facing, so she's a, a young woman, unmarried, and she's agreeing to be pregnant by mysterious means. Now. Mm -hmm. That is really uh, something like a death sentence in her community. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you don't have sex outside of marriage. She's betrothed to Joseph. She's not supposed to be <laughs> getting pregnant by someone else. So it's, uh, it's really something that is counter to, to uh, the conventions of her time and the strength of her consent, of her saying, yes, be it done to me according to thy word. That's a way of really that's a sign that you're dealing with a really uh, extremely strong person uh, with a very deep faith at the minimum. Now, what I, I like about the, the later tradition um, of her being a bookworm or an intellectual, I don't think Christians are required to believe that, but I think it can help you with your devotion. If, if what do you think the reason for that was? I mean, what was the motivation of the people that promulgated that view of her? Um, I think that they wanted her to have all the virtues, uh, and uh, especially in the you know late antiquity, um, intellectual virtues were, were were central to faith. They didn't; they were not as uncomfortable with <laughs> thinking that um, that being holy might be connected to one's understanding of of things. So I. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. They wanted her to have all the virtues, and they recognized that um, the intellect, as we were just saying, is a source of strength. That is, if you are concerned with what's true and what's good, that gives you an anchor um, to, to, to make choices that isn't just doing what everyone expects you to do or everyone wants you to do. So I, I think that was part of it. Uh, and, and she was... Uh, you know, Mary's meant to be a model for all believers. And, uh, you know, you have these bookworm monks who are scholars, and they look up to Mary as this model of someone who who studied and had her study in the right order. Um, 
so I, I think that's part of it. I, it's, it's, a, it's a way of making, of bringing out an aspect of her humanity that, that people can relate to and aspire to. Um, I think that's what's behind it. Well, at this point, I'd like to remind listeners that we are talking today with Zena Hitz, author of the book Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. And given that you were talking about being strong and where people find strength, you talk about the figure, uh, the, the concept of dignity. And I'd like to read it. It's the, your, your book is so full of passages. I would just type, I wrote them out by, I typed them in. I said, okay, they could quote this because it, it should be quoted. <laughs> That's it. They're like it. But you write in the moving, movingly in the book about several figures, such as Malcolm X and political fit prisoners from Iron Curtain countries for whom intellectual life was a lifeline into humanizing conditions and saved people from dis- despair. You know, there was this phenomenon in Auschwitz that people just turned their face to the wall and just died because they just couldn't bear it anymore. But you say in this, in the book, the inward of the inwardness of the mind at leisure unlocks a dignity that is so often diminished by the so, by social life and social circumstances. And elsewhere in the book, you write, it is worth trying to get at what dignity is and why it might belong in a special way to intellectual life. And circling back to the subject of asceticism, which we discussed earlier, asceticism, you write, asceticism, sacrifice and suffering, which you mentioned, suffering for the sake of some good is fundamental for our dignity. Could you discuss dignity? Oh, wow. Okay. So this is a really hard, this is a really tough one. And I, I, I struggled, <laughs> I struggled with it in the book because on the one hand, it felt really right to me to say that, you know, what is it that someone like Malcolm X, you know, who's, uh, grows up in a, a very, uh, racist environment. He's, his father's killed by, uh, is murdered by, uh, white men. His, uh, the welfare office breaks up his family. Um, so someone who's really, uh, been diminished by his community and is in prison uh, for for theft. Um, and prisoners in general are not, uh, as one might hope, treated with with uh, as as human beings. So, what does he find? He finds in the books. He reads the whole prison library, as we know from his autobiography and, and uh, more recent biographies, um, or the most of it. Um, and by reading, he finds a sense of his own dignity and the dignity of others, I think also. So that, there's this, this sense in which, you know, I, he understands his worth. He understands that he's more than uh, an animal who can be casually murdered or a, uh, uh, a, a being that has to be caged uh, and is richly humiliated. He knows that he's someone who's capable of, um, uh, memorizing poetry and understanding human history and thinking about the fundamentals of life and uh, pondering questions about uh, the creation of the world and and the nature of uh, society and the history of racism and that's that's all a source of human worth it's it's uh, it's something splendid about human beings that we can do this we can think about things we can find all of these depths in ourselves. Uh, so that's why I wanted to use a word like dignity, because I wanted to try to capture that and, and to capture why there are so many stories, uh, some of which I collect in the book, of people from diminished backgrounds, uh, people of working classes, people, uh, people who work in the service industry, uh, people who are the victims of prejudice, people who live under totalitarian regimes uh, like fascism uh, or uh, Soviet communism, 
and these people have to struggle to find uh, why they're why they are valuable, what matters about them, and they find it through poetry and through thinking about things and through doing mathematics. Um, they 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 are in a way defending themselves from their environment. Um, I, I, that's a start. Uh, I'm sure you can have more. You can come back at me with with something. Oh, well, well, one aspect of it, yeah, you you quote in the book of, from a study of working class, the, the the I guess the intellectual life of the working class. Uh, a, 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 I'm sure you could give the title of it. It was a, yeah. a very notable book. And uh, the British working classes. That's right. It's a 2001 book by a scholar named Jonathan Rose. Uh, um, who, who gives these, he, he collects these first person accounts of these working people in Britain who, through grassroots intellectual programs or sometimes through middle class outreach, they, they read books, they discover poetry, uh, they study astronomy, and this whole world opens up for them that hasn't been available to them before. Well, uh, one, one thing I found interesting in that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, well, when, in, in that, in that you, were, you quoted several of them, and one thing that was very tragic and touching about them was they felt as they began to be estranged from their own backgrounds or shamed of their own backgrounds. And you talk about that, that you have experienced people manifesting that same phenomenon in American academia or even, I guess, Anglo, Anglo-American Anglo academia, because you've been in Cambridge as well, of people making fun of their own families because they, and, and oh, in yes. the book you talk about someone going back, well, that you quote in the Rose's book about a person going back to her working class home from Oxford and how ugly everything suddenly seemed. And, and she just was, but it was, uh, everything was horrible and drab and dreary. And that was, that was so sad. She, you know, I know it, it's uh it really is sad. And it's also, as I, as I, as you just said, it's a, it's some, it's a reality that I feel like I've seen a, a lot of people in academia that I've met. A lot of them come from, now it's considered this really elite activity, but a lot of them come from really non-elite backgrounds. And some of them are, uh, keep in touch with their non-elite backgrounds. They, they have some loyalty to it, but men, often it's, um, a, a deep rejection uh, and connected with a certain kind of a shame from that. So that's part of what's tricky in that, I think the, the two questions we've just been talking, the question about dignity and the question about um, losing touch with your, your roots, intellectual life as a sort of route out of poverty. And so a route to contempt for, <laughs> for your origins. Um, it's, you can feel the tension, I think. On the one hand, what are these people doing when they, um, you know, rise from their working class families and go to Oxford and become comfortable in a different social class? Well, in a way, they're escaping from the diminishment of where they came from. In another way, the escape is not so much in their uh, uh, intrinsic dignity as human beings. It's it's a competitive escape. So they've they've escaped being low class by being higher class. Um, and that's not, I think, in the end, a satisfying exchange. So one of the things I try to emphasize in the book is that the problem with status competitions, um, with competitions in rank, social ranking, is that they actually diminish everybody. They diminish the people on the low end in an obvious way, the reject, the loser, the you know, bottom of the heap. But uh, if you're valued because of your athletic ability or because of your money or because of your good looks or 
uh, you're also being diminished. Uh, it's, it's, and that's why I think there are also stories uh, of people who um, find their dignity through intellectual life from uh, being extremely successful. There's something empty, there's something missing, and uh, they find in the work of the mind some value that really belongs to them, that isn't just handed to them by the outside world. Uh, so I, that also, I think, helps with the notion of dignity, that it's, it's something which uh, any competitive form of social life has the danger of diminishing. And, and that really, I think everyone really craves some contact with a sense that their worth is, is built into them and is not conditional. Well, I was going to save this to, to the end, but I think I'll read it now because you're talking about what about the intellectual life and what it can mean to people. And I, I think this is just an incredibly beautiful passage in your book that you wrote and, and in the book. And I'd like to read it. And it's it's very, I hope I can do justice to it, but you're, you talked about what, what the intellectual life can do for people. And you say, this is from the book towards the end. What Well, perhaps, perhaps towards the end of the thing. What good is intellectual life? It is a refuge from distress, a reminder of one's dignity, a source of insight and understanding, a garden in which aspiration is cultivated, a hollow of a wall to which one can temporarily withdraw from the current controversies to gain a broader perspective, to remind oneself of one's universal heritage. All of this makes clear at the least that it is an essential good for human beings, even if one good among others. And I wonder if you could discuss that term essential good a little bit. Uh, wow. Is that, um, is that too broad? No, no, it's just difficult. I'm just, re I'm reeling at the difficulty. That, so, uh, you know, I, I think I say an essential good. It's a bit of a dodge. Um, so you have a nose for the dodges. Um, it's a bit of a dodge because um, part of me wants to say it's fundamental to every human life. It's the most important thing. But I'm trying to, you know, trying to cast a wide net. I'm trying to reach a broad audience. And I, I think that that doesn't fly with some people. So I just kind of step back and I say, well, it's essential. Good. It's, it, there may be other really important things, um, but uh, this is really important. So it's a kind of a hedge. Um, I, instead of saying it's, it's the central most important thing, it's the key to human happiness, I say, well, at least... It's as important as other things that we care about. Um, and I, you know, I talk about this, um, I guess what I think, about, the hedge is worth making in a lot of cases because um, I don't want to say, for instance, that one should always and everywhere pursue the most intellectual activity one can. Uh, sometimes a basic kind of service to one's neighbor is more important or more necessary um, sometimes you have to, you know, you need to pay attention to, you know, is, are the structures of your society just, is the law being followed, is the whole thing being put together in a good order, uh, you need to think about uh, growing food and delivering it to people, there's all kinds of dimensions to human life and all kinds of things that people need, um, and, uh, I don't want to say that, um, intellectual life is something superfluous in the sense that we can just forget about it and have a culture without it and we'll be fine. Because uh, I, th I think that that's not true. We need to have intellectual life along with creative life, along with uh, religion and things like that. Um, we need to have that so that there's something in which our lives culminate. Uh, 
for which all the feeding and the healthcare and the justice is for, ultimately. Well, you discuss, you mentioned the question of audience, and you you, you want to have a, 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 an audience, not just academics, but general readers. And I can say, well, I'm a general reader, and I think many of the people who listen to the New, New Books Network are general readers. They're oh, educated great. people who, who want. So, but I, in the book you write, Learning and intellectual life are not the exclusive province of professional academics, but academics are their official guardians, and so a good place to begin renewal from. But I also, and you write, but I also hope that this book will fall into the hands of non-professionals with intellectual interests, and they will recognize themselves in it. Perhaps we'll be even better off. We will be even better off if intellectual life is renewed from the grassroots. So I think your book is a good is a good platform or a good argument for that. Oh, thank you. Good. That was exactly what I wanted it to be. Good. <laughs> Well, it, but and, and another aspect of the book that I think is really powerful is that it's timeless in the fact that you discuss the great, for example, uh, August, Augustine, who was centuries ago. But you also, as I read it, even though you weren't addressing, this was written long before the coronavirus ever appeared. On, I mean, it was was in our radio, on our yes. on the radar, as they say. But it's it's a, it was almost eerie reading sections <laughs> of your book about it. It was it was it was really spooky almost. But I, I'd like to read some of those passages and show why this book is not only relevant now and ten, but will be ten years from now, or just for people who are interested in the intellectual life, but also why it is germane or relevant now to the to the to the situation with the political first i'll start off with the the disease aspects of it i'd like to read this this section which again is is very prescient uh you write of human fragility and of human beings and then you say human beings can be and then you say melted down from within by the invisible machinery of a busy heartless contagion and we ima- and then you continue in another part of the book, it's later on in that passage, you write, we imagine that death is for beings inferior to us. We imagine our worth lies in health or the appearance of health, in pleasure or the public display of pleasure, in moving matters and spe- matter in tra- dramatic, spectacular ways, in compliments and cheering crowds. We think that through these things, we have become something different, something not made of flesh and blood, perhaps some- something perhaps shinier and more durable, something perhaps immaterial and ineffable. And then you also continue imagining, reflecting, pondering the fact of one's own susceptibility to illness and death can be part of the most ordinary life. And you also say, and our humanity is not a profession to be left to the accomplished few. And I think that the, the accomplished few made me think of the fact that right now, every, every lay person is kind of at the mercy of, or the gentle ministrations of the expert class, the public health officials, the governors, and we have very little agency at this point. And it's almost like we have to hunker down and just hope that everybody else, that that particular group knows what he, he or she is doing. <laughs> and, and, uh, but I thought that was, a, a, and then, and then if you don't mind, I'll go on with uh, when you, that, that, that you're talking about the, 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 um, the illness as the disease aspect of it. But this is when you also go on about, and this is another spookily uh, eerie, uh, another prescient passage, you write of, uh, and this given our pandemic economic catastrophe, you write. I mean, you didn't. I mean, I'm I'm reading it as that, but you didn't write that as that. If there's nothing else to intellectual life, it is only if it is only a sophisticated pleasure held held in place by what supports a high status lifestyle, then it cannot change us. And you spoke earlier about change and being open to change. If if it's if it's nothing else, if it's if it's only that, it remains a form of entertainment rather than a means of self examination or personal transformation. Nor can it be a refuge when the conditions for wealth and comfort collapse. Or if the institutions that support us in our lifestyles fall apart, 
if we fail to meet their conditions or if we are the victims of dramatic political or economic change. And I just went, whoa. <laughs> it was like you had a crystal ball. Uh, well, I... I don't, I didn't have a crystal ball, just so you know, I didn't have a crystal ball. Um, I did, I do think that um, the last real uh, explosion of writing about the life of the mind and the liberal arts and the great books and so on was around the middle of the 20th century. Um, And that's a time when people are reflecting on uh, the contingency of their, societies, because you've had two world wars and a major depression, and things which seemed uh, solid and certain, and uh, people who, like uh, the Germans of the early 20th century, who seemed to be at the sort of the pinnacle of Western civilization, turned out to be capable of these these unbelievable things. Um, and, you know, whole, uh, whole cultures, families, countries uh, rise and fall uh, in, in ways that are dizzying and, and disorienting. So I, I think that part of, um, and I think it's also, frankly, part of what um, one learns by reading uh, what are called the great books. Um, they are stories of contingency and collapse. Uh, you know, Thucydides on the Peloponnesian War, you know, he the Athenians are the uh, uh, top of the heap. Uh, they're king of the mountain, and they make a few bad decisions, and the whole thing crumbles like dust. Uh, so I, I think uh, I attribute it not to any special prophetic powers of mine, but just to, uh, the fact that I'm connected on a daily basis through my work with uh, these old books, which are always telling us that the things we think are certain are not, and that, uh, and also this tradition from the mid-20th century of, of reflecting on the humanities and the liberal arts and the great books in light of uh, the massive contingencies that, that modern life can't, uh, can't um, protect us from. We think they can, and, and it's part of what you're talking about too. You know, we, we think that somehow some expert's going to come in and sort out this global pandemic and just going to fix it. You know, and they, they, it's obvious they can't fix it. <laughs> I mean, eventually they, we might come up with a vaccine and that would be great. Um, but we've seen, I think, a lot of uh, experts in the expert class uh, say or do things that, that didn't seem grounded in the reality. And I, I think that that's a, that's a scary prospect, you know, <laughs> that yeah. we can be ruled by people who don't know what they're doing. And I, so I, anyway, so all to say it was not prophetic. It was just, I think, part of, the uh, the timeless themes of of, uh, of this kind of study, uh, the contingency of things. Well, on on that on that note of the the, the the timelessness of it, you discuss the in the book the virtue of seriousness, and again connecting it to the modern day of of your teaching the students what is 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 meant for centuries. But in the current health crisis. In terms of seriousness, is it is the economic, public health, economic and public health crises are they burning that seriousness in millions of people who lacked it before, or are we over dramatizing the current situation? After all, staying home for a few months is hardly life in a concentration camp. What level of seriousness is called for, and and, it would, and do you happen to notice are many people turning to escapist fare rather than serious reading? Is fluff is fluff called for rather than sterner stuff? Uh, it's a great question, and the, you know the truth is I just don't know. It's a question I've asked myself. You know, it, it, are we taking? Is this? Are we making too much of this? Uh, is this really a, uh, a, 
a worldwide global game changer. I think it has to be if only for the economic reasons, uh, which which might have been the, the result of decisions that might have gone differently and could still go differently. It looks to me like the, the economic uncertainty is serious. And I do think, to me, I don't know, this has been my impression from this period of coronavirus, and it could change tomorrow. But my impression is that things pull in two different directions, this crisis. And on the one hand, you have this pull towards distraction, um, towards yeah, anything to keep your mind away from <laughs> uh, one's solitude, one's isolation, one's fear of the future. You know, so, you know, video games, pornography, anything, Netflix, anything to just to just distract um, and on the other hand, a, a turn towards seriousness. So those things both seem to be going on at once. And, and I think probably sometimes in the same people and in the same places. Um, but you, it, it pulls in two directions. It pulls towards um, a sort of <laughs> what I would call the solidification of the the, the rule of big tech over our inner lives. <laughs> so, you know, here we are, we're at home and we can't even get groceries without using the computer, you know, it's the, or entertain ourselves. We can't go to the movies anymore. It's all through streaming. We, you know, it's, uh, so uh, there's this, um, so there's a way in which everything becomes more centrally controlled. And there's another way in which things fall apart and people, um, are imagining and creating new kinds of possibilities uh, because they can't rely on the old ways anymore. So I don't know which of, you know, which of those two things is going to prevail or how they interact or anything like that. That's just what I've seen, I feel like, in the past couple of months. Well, one aspect that I thought was interesting, a, a slight contrary, you, you invited me to say, uh, push you a little bit, and you, you're very critical in the book of Twitter, and yet you're on Twitter. <laughs> I am on so, Twitter all the time. I, I, I think it's a wonderful combination in your, in your Twitter feed of the fact that it's, it's serious links to serious pieces of, of thoughtful writing. Plus, you had a, when I was working with my mother in the garden yesterday, I said, I saw a really good tweet about it's not effective when you're weeding to think of the garden, to think of it as, as, as being, my garden needs weeding. You have to think of each individual weed as an enemy that must be destroyed. <laughs> exactly. I, found that, I found that much more effective. I said, that's, I'm getting that one. He's going to die right now. And I thought, but I think that, but you make the point that Twitter can be a very ugly place, but you're, but, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's where thoughtful people like you tweet to substantive, intellectually engaging work or, or just make clever points? Well, so I, I, I want to say that I don't, I don't think I'll often have the chance to make this kind of defense. So I, I want to take the opportunity. I, I, do, I do want to confess, I think that part of my current attachment to Twitter is out of a kind of a weakness. That is, I'm quarantined. I live by myself. And it's just a wonderful uh, way to entertain myself. It's my particular chosen form of distraction to a certain extent. Um, I also think that over time I have been able, it was, I found it quite difficult and I'm sure others have found it difficult. One of the modes of Twitter, just as the mode of Facebook or in general, our news media, it's, it's very much outrage generate, um, generated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we want to feel outraged. We look out for the stories that outrage us. Um, and uh, that, I think, is uh, very dangerous to us intellectually and, and morally. Um, we, we should be 
concerned with um, looking for what's edifying or what might be changed for the better or um, rather than uh, getting stuck in an emotional condition where everything is terrible and we're constantly in a dramatic uh, emotional reaction to it. So it, over time, over years, frankly, on social media, I've, t- I've trained myself not to react um, to, to, to outrage and, or to pass on outrage. Um, every now and then I, you know, I, I feel the pull again, but I, so th- that's part of it. The other thing is that I think um, the truth is, and I want to say this too, um, when I started writing this book, uh, when I actually st- wrote that first essay, which was the root of it, it, it was published in First Things uh, about five years ago, um, I felt very much alone in the world. I-, I would read articles about higher education, and I would think, wow, am I the only person who thinks that um, reading and thinking is really worth doing for its own sake? You know, am I the only person who thinks that uh, maybe directing everything towards what's useful or what's political um, is a mistake? Am I the only person that thinks that community really matters for intellectual life? Uh, and what I've discovered through things like Twitter and also just through writing in general is how many people are out there who are sympathetic and who are thinking about the same things. I think that's the gift of social media if, if it's used properly is a way of finding people um, out there in the world who care about the things that you care about and, and you can encourage one another and give each other ideas and help one another. Um, and, uh, and that's great. Uh, that's, that's performing something of the function. I think in, in, um, you know, uh, intellectuals used to write letters in that massive correspondence, uh, with, and people, you know, you'd write letters to strangers and they might write back. And so we've, we've lost that, but I think this is a kind of a substitute. It's a way of, of making connections, uh, with people who care about the same things. And I, I've really enjoyed that actually about Twitter, um, these past months. Well, I, I encourage people to Google your name and the word Twitter, and they'll find you pretty easily. <laughs> enjoy, I enjoy it. But uh, one of the things that you that you talk about, and we discussed this earlier about about getting away from the primacy of politics and making everything political. And yet, again, I'll I'll press you a little bit on that. In your book, um, you, you you I'll read the names of the people that some of the people you discuss: Dorothy Day, Antonio Gramsci, Malcolm X, Simone Weil, and those are. Those were inherently, I mean, those were political animals, many of them were. That's what, I mean, they might have dressed, dressed, dressed a lot of it up in, in philosophy and so forth and scholarship, but that, that would, I mean, like, who was more political than Tony Grumpy? Or, and Dorothy Day, I mean, she was, she founded a basically what is sort of a quasi political party, the Catholic Workers Party, and she wrote editorials. It wasn't as though she was not, not engaged politically. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's funny. You're you're absolutely right to notice that tension. Um, and part of it, uh, and I, I have to think carefully about how I want to answer it. Um, I I do think that um, part of what I wanted to do, I suppose, was when I first started writing about this, I was very emphatic, very very emphatic that. Um, intellectual life mattered not because it was politically useful, but because of what it did for human beings, what, the way it changes us and the way it helps us to grow. And that would be true regardless of any political effects. Um, and uh, that was, I think, the part of the view that is most controversial, frankly, because we live in such a political age um, and, you know, because of 
modern media, we constantly have in our faces 10 trillion injustices, um, which seem worthy of remedying. And it seems self-indulgent to sit in your library and read books all the time. And I myself, as a graduate student, was tortured by this thought that somehow what I was doing was useless and I needed to be addressing the suffering of the world. So well, that, what, what, I, what I love about these figures of Dorothy Day and, and Malcolm X, um, in Gramsci's case, I think, is a little more... It, it, there's a bit of a tension in Gramsci that I try to suggest in the book. And I'm not a Gramsci expert, and so I put it out there in the hopes that someone else will work it out. He, he, he seems to be saying, even though he thinks on principle that all intellectual work is, is political... Uh, he seems to be saying that what he's doing in prison is cultivating himself and his inner life and something eternal. And that's, that's a tension in him. So I, I, anyway, I just want to say that, but go ahead and come back with what you were, you wanted to ask about. Um, well, you, well, you were, you were mentioning uh, the fact that going out into the world and engaging and so forth. And, and a large part of your book or a section of it is about the 1941 Preston Sturgis film, Sullivan's Travels. And that's right. I mentioned to you in an email that, uh, that you and I com- see this completely differently. And I think that's probably a, a good indication that it's a great film so, because, I, but you, you you see it as that, I, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how I see it, and then you can tell me that I, you can correct me because I'd be interested to see what your reaction is. My reaction was, this film is a combination of screwball comedy and social commentary and poverty and political and economic equality. You write of it quite approvingly, and I, I at the end, at the end of the film, to me, the film director hero, after seeing the poor and social the poor and social just injustice close up, decides that he can best serve humanity by making Hollywood comedies. Now, <laughs> right. to me, isn't that the quintessential self-serving Hollywood liberal argument? President <laughs> seems to be saying, golly, there are poor people in America. I had better continue my career in Hollywood making frothy comedies and form an alliance with the tycoon Howard Hughes, which he did. Am I completely <laughs> wrong here? I mean, it, to me, it's, 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 it's like President Surgeon said, I, am, I mean, that's virtue signaling to the max. And, that, and in his own life, I mean, President Surgeon did not quit to go teach high school math in rural Oklahoma, right? He stayed in Hollywood and the, the and Broadway theater for the rest of his life. And, and, and it was, it was like, okay, I'm going to make this really funny film and these are poor people, but I'm not going to align myself other than making a film out of them. So I, I, you definitely have a point that the ending of the, the movie where, where filmmaker Sullivan having had his little experience of being poor goes back to his mansion and, and makes comedies. And you think, well, this, this, this might be a little self-serving a conclusion that somehow he, <laughs> living in his, living in his mansion is just as good or even better than really helping people. I, I guess I think this, uh, part of what I wanted to take from the film was this hilarious send up of how um, inefficacious our attempts as middle class or as wealthy people are to encounter the experiences of the poor. And how, how quickly you talk they, about Simone Vi in that respect. Yeah, too, how, how quickly they fall into sort of a parody or, you know, mm. you, um, or even something patronizing or, or, uh, or, or sort of you're interested in the spectacle of yourself, you know, being poor, you, you want to kind of possess their suffering, but y- you actually can't do that because the only way to be poor is to be poor. Um, so that, that, that I think is brilliant about the movie. That, I think the thing that I wanted to um, take from it, and I think you're right that there's room to disagree considering the ending, but I do think that it's true what Sullivan says at the end that um, somehow thinking that making comedy is silly and trivial 
because, which is how he is at the beginning of the movie. Making comedy is silly and trivial because of all the suffering in the world. You've got to make films about suffering. And realizing through his journey that comedy really does matter, which I think it does. I mean, making people laugh, that really matters. Uh, it's really important. It's, it's fundamental. Um, and so in my view, he's moving away from the sort of more typical Hollywood virtue signaling. You know, this is a movie that, you know, unveils uh, the oppression with which we all live in. I'm using my voice to be a voice for the oppressed which never seems to work very well, it's clunky, it's patronizing, uh, that he's discovered something different, which is that comedy is worthwhile. Uh, so I, uh, and I wanted to say that something like that's true for, for intellectual life, that is, it's, it's worthwhile spending your life writing commentaries on Aristotle. It's not self-indulgent. Um, you're, you're helping people uh, maintain a piece of their humanity. Now, that's not to say that... Uh, you know, I personally, as a as a Catholic, I think living in a big Hollywood mansion and making comedies for the poor is hypocritical. I think you have to also sacrifice your time and your treasure to the actual people in your community who are suffering. So comedy is not enough, but it's it, there is an insight there. Um, I don't know if you find that convincing or not, but that's that's my defense of my um, my reading of Sullivan's Travels. Well, I hope I hope that you will continue to be interviewed about film because I think you're a very gifted film critic as well as a. Oh, thank you, thank you. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know there was so much depth in that in that film. So um, now I'd, I'd like to conclude by asking, given that you do address an academic audience and and the general public on the state of American academic, academia, I'd like to to talk about your your concern about the fact that everything is is that the students are in, in, engaged in sort of this mass you know, not, they're not getting personal attention enough. And you write, and this is very strong, you write, it is a disgrace to our system of higher education that person-to-person teaching belongs only to a handful of liberal arts colleges and to elite doctoral programs. But I'd like, but also I would point out, and you know, I'm sure you know this, obviously, that's extremely labor-intensive and a, therefore a highly, hugely expensive proposition. But you say that academics have lost the capacity to, to justify and explain to our fellow citizens or to philanthropists, much less to ourselves, why our inter institutions matter. And you and you again, circling back to your own life story, that you left a, 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 the fast track of you know extremely prestigious um, positions and major universities to to go to with your, to where you were educated as a young person yourself, and you're fine and you're very finding it very rewarding. And if I were, if I had a college age student, I want you to be their teacher, actually, oh, or her teacher. But um, I wonder if you want to, want to conclude on the, on the, on the, what in the state of higher education and what do you think, uh, again, I, I know I'm belaboring the, the coronavirus issue, but it seems to be in the air that there is a sea change coming and that many small liberal arts colleges are in the, the you know, the, the, this, this, the, the buzzword of the day is existential crisis. Yeah. So how do you how do you see? And also, do you see that that is there any value in the fact that if if these young um, and and you made a point about how how so many institutions of higher education are dependent on this highly exploitative situation of adjunct teaching, right? And it could it be that those people become sever, severed from what you say is sometimes a rather corrupting and also 
uh, just a dead end anyway, intellectually, because they're not able to teach. They're just on the highway migrating between and, you know, teaching these, these classes, these enormous classes. Right. And you know. so where, where do you, how can you put on your prognosticator hat again? Or <laughs> Well, I'm actually, uh, it's helpful to talk about it because I'm, I'm writing a piece for um, the Chronicle Review about this right now. So I, um, and it's a little bit, I feel somewhat like I'm stepping out on a limb because I, you know, I've worked in a lot of institutions of higher education and different kinds, liberal arts colleges as well as research universities and public as well as private. And I've been in universities in different countries and so on. Um, I do think quite strongly that learning in its most basic form, and this is whether you're talking about learning dance, learning music, learning karate, learning science, learning engineering, learning math, learning philosophy, it is fundamentally at its best person to person. It's habits of mind that are passed on with feedback um, between a teacher and a student. You know, the teacher says something, the teacher tries, the student tries it, the student gives, the teacher gives feedback, and so on. I, so I, I think that that's um, true. And I, so, so there's a way in which I want to say very rhetorically, well, colleges can't afford not to do this expensive as it is. So part of me wants to say that. Um, the What I'm seeing right now is, again, with coronavirus, and here I think it really is relevant, because I think it, it we are likely in the middle of a kind of catastrophe for higher education, not just liberal arts colleges, um, but of course, these big universities, Johns Hopkins uh, and uh, Notre Dame and um, Harvard and Stanford, these are all places which are facing tens of millions of dollars in shortfalls. Um, so the whole system, it seems to me, is in a kind of crisis, and the government may intervene, but we don't know how, and we don't know what's going to happen. So I see, two again, two strands. One pressure is um, towards uh, making everything as cheap as possible. Okay, So that's the pressure which is most dramatic is towards moving to online learning. Um, one of the things I think that's remarkable that's happened in the past couple of months is that this is what... I think many people thought was inevitable. We were all going to move to online learning. It's so much cheaper. Is it really any worse? Um, and at the very beginning of the crisis, that was my greatest fear. I thought we're going to go online and we'll never come off again. And what's happened is that the students across the country have delivered a verdict, which is that they do not like online learning and they do not want to pay for it. So in a certain way, it's a case where the market, which you know, academics like me are not always a fan of, but in this case, it's really spoken. The students do not want online learning. They want in-person learning. Um, if, if well, just, to, just to be devil's advocate, is it possible it's not the luring, it's the issue, but the social networking that they do when they're, I mean, you can't, if you're, say, at, at Yale or, or Harvard, a lot of it is connecting with your students and building your network of associates that will help you get the cushy jobs later. Is it, is it really that they're rebelling? Are they just saying, I'm not going to pay $60,000 a year or, or, you know, hundred or, or more for not that, that, that social cachet that I get that I'm uh, not getting. So, so I, I hear the devil's advocate. I think two things for one thing, having just spent some weeks doing online teaching, it is uh, unquestionably, uh, much more boring <laughs> to be in an online class for students and for teachers 
than to be in an in-person class. It's much harder to bring the energy, to have a spontaneity, to have enthusiasm catch fire. Just everything feels like pulling. So that's that's one thing. Now, well, what, what, I, I just wanted to say that I heard I heard a woman say that her granddaughter is 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 saying that online education is making her work harder because before she could just sit and listen to a lecture, and now the professor is saying, "Well, I want you to do all these online assignments," and that's that's more taxing for the students. Uh, it it can be, but I, I, I'm going to stand by. I, I think it's really uh, the students have not like there's even lawsuits, you know, that students have lodged against universities for providing an inferior product for the same price. Anyway, mm. but let me get back to your question about networking, which I think is is actually kind of crucial because I think that networking is really a diminishment, calling it networking is a diminishment of the kind of thing that happens in college. What happens in college is forms of friendship. Um, and often, especially at a place like St. John's, which is an intellectual school, it's intellectual friendship. So our students learn a lot from one another. They're part of a community of learning, as we used to call it. Uh, they, um, we, give, we assign very difficult material, uh, and they work together on it. They help each other figure it out. And then they come to class. Then they talk to each other about what happens in class. So yes, there's a way in which this has an economic effect of networking. And frankly, I've taken advantage. I, I've gone to college with very accomplished people, and they've helped me out. I mean, networking is a real phenomenon. But it's um, it's that social world uh, where you're building friendship. It's a time that's set apart for you to grow personally, intellectually, to reflect on what you want to do with your life to be out of your parents' house, for at least for middle-class students. I and mean, that's not the norm in all higher education, but it is true for the, um, you know, the liberal arts colleges and the more elite institutions. You're away from your parents, um, you're, uh, and, you're, and you're living a kind of new, and that, that's very attractive. Uh, but it's connected to uh, learning in real life and, and the excitement and the spontaneity that comes when you are with in the classroom with a person who really cares about what they're teaching. That's transmitted. Have you, have you, had, have you had students write you and say, I miss you, professor? They didn't contact me directly, but there were seas of complaints about online learning that went straight to our dean and our president. Uh, they really, they really, our students really hated it and, and resisted it all the way. So, Anyway, I, I think to get back to the future of higher education, I think there's there's two possibilities. One, I mean, they could mix, but one possibility is everything becomes very centralized, very cheap, um, very automated. Um, and uh, I think that's a disaster for higher education. I think certain kinds of professional training can be done that way. But I think if you look at, so um, I was reading an article, this was secondary school, uh, not college, uh, you can get away with things in secondary school because people don't necessarily cho- choose them to the same terms to be there. Uh, a, a school in New York where um, one teacher teaches online 112 ninth graders in seven sections of ninth grade geometry. Now, that's not a, a scenario where um, a lot of personal feedback and attention is going to take place. There may be good things about that setup. But so, so higher it could move in that direction. I think that would be very bad. Um, it could reform um, in the way that I hope it would by asking itself what matters about it, which is teaching and learning and studying and trying to find institutions which uh, restructure institutions in a way that those things become more central. There's a lot of waste and a lot of ridiculousness in our Mm -hmm. universities. Um, 
there's insanely high salaries uh, paid to high-end administrators, med mm. school professors, law school professors, hotshot humanities professors. Um, we have old practices for the competition and prestige where, you know, um, you fly in some hotshot scholar from Europe for one month out of the year to teach a little class and you pay them six figures for that. So there's, there's tons of waste and um, unnecessary prestige wrangling. There's a lot of um, elements of a university that are in themselves profitable, uh, which would probably be better off as independent businesses. So athletics, for instance, or, uh, or um, hospitals, um, you know, you're, you're, these people get millions of dollars in salary. I, I was looking at the uh, list of salaries of Maryland state employees the other day. And of course, the top 25, 30, 40, it's people at universities, coaches, and med school professors and administrators. You get to the governor, sort of way, way down the list. You know, gets paid a paltry one hundred eighty million, one hundred eighty thousand dollars for being well, the, the coach. The coach, of course, would argue. Well, I bring in. You know, yes, uh, yes. I don't know the figures of the, how they balance out. But. Uh, of course. So these are supposed to be in the hospitals too. They're revenue generating. But what are we hearing? Um, well, athletics is losing money, and hospitals are losing money. So why don't we start? You know, if if these are really money making, why don't these salaries follow the way of the revenue of those sectors? You know, Absolutely. So, so, so you're, you're, there's a lot of waste and inconsistency and cruddy thinking. And I think we can't really talk about the cost of something like person to person learning until we've really taken a hard look at all of those costs. I, just let one last thing. One thing that I think may happen, which would involve also a lot of sacrifice, although also something interesting. I think we might be looking in both secondary education, primary and secondary, and at higher education at um, a kind of um, growth of a freelance, uh, grassroots kind of a market. So it's not going to take much for people to figure out that they can hire a private tutor or uh, a bunch of families can get together and hire a professor <laughs> to mm-hmm. teach their children things without the overhead, without the administrative costs, without this, without that. Um, and uh, I would not be surprised if that um, started Con- to take shape. Concierge education. Exactly. I, I, you know, and um, it, it, there, there's a lot of loss to it. We'd have to think about what kind of access the poor would have to education like that. Um, how, so how could, and uh, how could these, how could poor people like me, assuming that I'm one of these people, uh, uh, you know, how do people make a living uh, at the outset? Uh, so it's sort of gig economy type work. But I, I do think that universities are approaching a point where um, it's not obviously the smart, the best way to get the thing that you want if what you want is to learn. Uh, uh, so, and it may not be the best way even to get what you want in terms of research. After all, a lot of that research is profitable. It could be funded by private companies. So anyway, I, that's a bunch of, um, a pastiche of thoughts about the future of higher education. Um, but I do think it's, I mean, it's a cliche, but, um, it's a, a very terrifying crisis for people involved in higher education. It really feels like a catastrophe, but there is also opportunity in a crisis like that. And uh, the people who uh, have come to recognize what really matters about a university, uh, it's, you know, it's time to get to the barricades and, and fight for it. Um, so that's, uh, that's my. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, if there's a, if, if the left is a little 
neutered because they so much of it is sort of a re-education camp that people are saying, you know, I don't want my kid to emerge as as a young Karl Marx necessarily, and uh, but that's just my that's my take. <laughs> I think that that that's a bit. In my experience in the universities, it's a bit exaggerated. It's not, there's some brainwashing, progressive brainwashing. There's also some conservative brainwashing. I think a lot's going on that's, that's, that's not uh, political. Um, but it is, um, it, it, you know, there's no question that universities have a bad image and colleges have a bad image. And uh, you take something out of the equation, like the in-person aspect of it and the prospect of paying Fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars, or even thirty thousand dollars, <laughs> to send your child to a place like that becomes a lot less attractive. Um, yeah, so. it's, it's really it's a fascinating real world test case of what what technology can do and what what uh, reform under the gun. Kind of <laughs> exactly, but, exactly. Yeah. Well, this is I think how all probably all real real reform takes place. It probably all takes place under the gun. Uh, <laughs> so so you know we we have that to say that's positive about it. Well, Zina, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I was going to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that's what is you working on now? But I think you just answered that. You're writing an article about this about this matter. <laughs> yes, so. I, that, that, that will be done pretty soon. I, I actually have uh, two book projects. Uh, oh, as yeah, okay. yes, so uh, one, uh, one is on, um, it's for a series, it's called The Philosopher Looks At, so A Philosopher Looks At Various Topics. So I'm writing a short Essay and what about, publisher is that? Um, uh, Cambridge. It has. It's. It's. Oh, under, it's under review. It's not final yet. But um, they. Uh, a philosopher looks at religious life. So I'm going to be writing about um, the life of a monk, the life of a monk, monastic life, uh, and how that might be seen as uh, something on the one hand that's human, a part of a desire for virtue, part of a desire for happiness. Um, and on the other hand, to try to separate out what might be unworldly or different about that. So that's one project. The other project I have is uh, a bit bigger and grander. It's about uh, a phenomenon called uh, moral, that I call moral fragility, uh, the idea that we're not uh, really in control of our moral condition. So morality is real and it matters and it accrues to individuals, but um, it, it depends on so many tiny circumstances and so many decisions can change uh, one's moral future in a way that's hard to foresee. So that's also an essay type book. I'll look at some literature. Kind of like, kind of like Lord Jim contemplating the lifeboat and he has to make a snap, a snap decision that affects the rest of his life. Exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of stories in literature like that and um, a lot of philosophical stories. And uh, I'm excited about that project too. Oh, good. Well, I hope that you will get get in contact with us, and we will be delighted to 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 discuss discuss when they're ready. <laughs> oh, well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, thank you so oh, much. Thank you thanks, so much. thanks to everyone listening. So, and with that, thank you. It's been a delight, delightful. I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Zena Hitz, author of Lost in Thought: The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye, bye.